Hello, listeners of the Mad Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell, here jumping in before this interview episode to uh, introduce today's interview. This week, we're joined by Brian Dunning, um, the author and creator of Skeptoid, a uh, podcast, uh, website, book series, all kinds of different things on science and skepticism. Uh, You likely know him from there. Otherwise, you might know him from his uh, tweets. But uh, Brian is a uh, skeptical activist, been working on Skeptoid since 2006. And really, uh, the goal of Skeptoid is to, quote, further knowledge by blasting away the widespread pseudosciences that infect popular culture and replace them with way cooler reality. Um, Anyways, hope you enjoy this week's interview. So, yeah, we're just going to go ahead and get started. So first off, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. This is such a uh, we're so we're so thrilled to have you on with us. It's always fun to do this, to, to speak to some new people and, and hopefully reach some new audience. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think it's funny. Um, our show kind of hits a weird niche in the, I guess, skeptical and also sort of paranormal. I don't know. Our, our listeners are sort of like skeptical, but hopeful. You know, <laughs> every show has its own weird niche. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's it's sort of an interesting one. I mean, it's um, it's it's always a lot of fun, you know, being able to do these sorts of things. So the reason we really wanted to have you on, besides the fact that, you know, so we've. Uh, Marie and myself and, you know, Marie couldn't be here tonight, but, um, you know, I've been a fan of Skeptoid um, since the first time I found it, which I think, you know, off and on over the course of, you know, almost my entire career as a kind of skeptical person interested in this stuff. Um, It's been such a such a pleasure listening to it. And recently you did a series on the UFO rogues gallery, as you called them. Yes, Um, (laughs) I think I think we called them the justice league of sort of science uh when we had when we talked about them on our show um give give us a little bit of background there that was you know what made you want to do the episodes well i i think the thing that was the main uh impetus for this particular topic was the if if you're ever on twitter and you use the ufo twitter hashtag and you get into you jump into that cesspool it's like oh my god and a lot of the a lot of what makes people take this so seriously is they say things like, "Well, these important government officials are involved, and you're not you're not calling them all liars, are you?" And and people in the military are involved, and and so surely that lends it plenty of credibility right there, and that's very compelling to the average person on the street, and but but however, when when you've been in this when you've been in this world for as long as I have. These names are all very, very familiar in mm-hmm. the history of ufology. These are people who have been uh, either paranormalists or advocates of alien visitation uh, and life after death believers for decades. And this is not like the government discovering that UFOs are real. This is a bunch of people who have a very strange set of beliefs and have for a long, long time finally successfully getting some press for their beliefs. Really what happened is they, they, they kind of, they're sort of misrepresenting their beliefs as, oh, alien, uh, th- these, these UAPs, as they're calling them now, because embarrassed that UFO sounds so goofy and has so much baggage to that term, UAPs are, are perhaps a credible threat to our military. Well, that takes, that's something that people take seriously, right? Of course. 
Um, but but no, that's not really what these same people believe. They they believe, and and I I wish I was kidding, but they believe that um, ghosts and aliens, both of which seem to appear and disappear sort of spontaneously and sporadically, they believe they're the same sort of manifestation of what they call interdimensional beings. Mm-hmm. And really what's at the core of this is Robert Bigelow's lifelong quest for life after death. And by constantly lobbying the government that UAPs are a, uh, are a credible threat to the military, he's been able to get tens of millions of dollars thrown at him to spend on basically his, his paranormal hobbies and, and, and get all of these people, again, all of these people are all f- names familiar to, uh, to the UFO community for decades. Um, it's, it, it's really quite astounding. When, when, when you lay out the whole story and you find, you list out the names going all the way back to the 1960s, and some of these people are still involved in it today. It's really kind of scary. And I think that it's, it's the kind of thing that people need to know. That this is not a story you should be taking seriously, and it's a lot wackier than you think it is. It, so that's that's a very long-winded answer, but that's that's why I felt this was an important topic to cover. No, well, it's such a it's a it is such a hard thing I think for a lot of people, especially just everyday people. You know, everyone in my life, you know, knows like, oh, Chris. You know, every time we go to whatever antique bookstores or whatever, Chris is excited when he finds, you know, the, the crazy book on UFOs or, or whatever, or Atlantis or any of those other kinds of, you know, the, the sorts of things that, you know, we cover on our shows um, or, you know, as, as skeptics and the, when, when the story came out, suddenly people were like, Oh, so are you must be really excited about this. And I had to kind of sit down everyone in my life and be like, listen, I'm not excited. It's, this is, it's, this is why this is bad. <laughs> like this is this is why this isn't um this is why this isn't really what you think it is. Yeah. It's it's sort of a you know in some ways they they didn't this is not a story about the government taking UFOs seriously. It's a story about some very crafty marketers of themselves, you know, people who are um capable of getting government money to fund these projects. It's, it's more of a story about kind of government corruption and grift and just how easy it is to get money from the government. If you have the right connections. Yeah. Very well said. Very well said. I mean, when you, when, when you're, you find yourself in that position of, of friends or something asking you, Hey, what do you think about this? This is, this is really something else. Um, You're actually in a position of some responsibility because you now have an opportunity to, make a difference in this person's life for the better or for the worse. Mm-hmm. You're going to suck them into the rabbit hole or you're going to help them to see, oh, there's a lot of bullshit out there in the world. I'm sorry. Can I say that on this show? You absolutely can. No, you're totally, you know, you know you're fine. You're fine. It's total bullshit. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it, I mean, far and away, the most fascinating part of it, I think has been the, just like you said, kind of the UFO Twitter crowd, you know, one one thing we on our show really like to focus in on is sort of the the philosophical disparities between 
this is a science and this is how science works and operates. And this is how pseudoscience and conspiracy operate. And the UFO topic in the last dozen years has been such a perfect, it's almost like a testing ground. You know, it's, it's the perfect test case for these, some of these sorts of ideas or theories. And one of the ones that comes up again and again is this, you know, the stories don't change and they just sort of, you know, it's like a Hydra. You think you've answered one problem. You know, Bob Lazar is a part of this story. He's kind of an offshoot part, but I think still an important part of this. Bob Lazar's story was not credible enough for even Bigelow to fund anymore. And yet he's come back and you're, you know, these, so these people now who are saying, no, this is serious and the government's taking it seriously and everything else in one breath have to kind of defend Bob Lazar because they funded his autobiography and they've, they're pushing from the same people who did his documentary and everything else, but then start to kind of push back on that again and say, well, actually though, maybe that's not so credible, but you don't want to say it out loud because you don't want to, you don't want to anger your fan base. Um, right. That has been such a hard thing. I think to, to convince people of or show them even that, you know, these ideas, these people, these motives, these are the same stories, you know, Bigelow tried this before with George Knapp and Leslie Keen and Blumenthal and, uh, or not Leslie Keen with, um, oh my goodness, Linda Moulton Howe, right? And George Knapp, this, that was his original attempt to push into me real media and it didn't work. And so it's just sort of like, well, now we try again. It's, uh, the, the circuit, the Ouroboros nature of it is so frustrating and interesting. Yeah. It's a, he's throwing enough things at the wall and eventually this one's stuck and it's, it's stuck big time. So what do you think one of the hardest parts of this recent push or, you know, this kind of push for UFO or UAP seriousness, it seems like it's really been aided by, by mainstream media. And we often, we talk about on the show a lot and I've seen a lot of people talk about this sort of on Twitter and on blogs and everything else. It seems like media has gotten worse at reporting on conspiracy theories in general. I mean, what do you, what do you think about that? Or do you think the media, what should the media be doing differently? Well, I mean, at a minimum, look it up on Wikipedia and they're clearly <laughs> not even doing that. It's so many of these reports that come out that they'll have, they'll have, Luis Elizondo on their show, for example, uh, and they'll say he was in, in charge of the Pentagon's program. Well, it seems quite clear by now that no, he wasn't. He never worked for it. He worked for Robert Bigelow for about one year when Bigelow was funding what was left of the program out of his own pocket. Well, I say out of his own pocket, but it came out of the $22 million he got from Harry Reid. Um, and, and they don't even look up Lou Elizondo on, on, on Wikipedia. Actually, until about three months ago, uh, two, three months ago, Elizondo did not have a Wikipedia page, which was causing a lot of us to tear our hair out because that's where we were hoping news producers would have been going first to see, is this guy for real or is he just some nut? And so um, I'm, I'm good friends with a, a, a nonprofit that does a lot of Wikipedia editing to get rid of crap pseudoscience and put in good information. And, um, and so with their help, we got a Wikipedia page up for Elizondo. Um, it's not really as 
skeptical as it should be. Uh, there's some other people editing it who take a fairly credulous view of him. Mm-hmm. Um, although I, I don't want to impugn the the people who are in charge of that page. They do a generally good job. They just have a tremendous amount of pressure in this particular subject area. But at least finally now there's a web page up there, and it, there's a Wikipedia page, and now a news producer looking up, oh, Lou Elizondo, should I have him on? Oh, well, it appears that he may not, he, his entire thing may just be just bullshit. Um, he, he, he has been in the military at some point. That's, that is apparently clear. And he worked for Bigelow for a year and the media was calling that he's the Pentagon's UFO program expert or whatever they call him. Yeah. Whiffs of, uh, whiffs of Nick Pope, you know, the, the mod, the mod leader of UFOs. And then, you know, come to find out that the role was much more, um, vapory i guess i would say not really you know um yeah the i think you're right the wikipedia page not being there the challenge in you know some of the best reporting on this that i that at least we were able to find when we did our series on kind of bigelow and his connections to all these people and everything else a lot of that information for us came from you know, some of it was word of mouth from from, you know, people who had been involved in UFO stuff for, you know, 50 years um, and then corroborating it, you know, going out there and finding documentation or um, at least other people who had seen similar things. So we could say, you know, well, these are what the rumors say. We can't say these are true, but at least this seems to be part of the story here. Um, the challenge is the challenge is that a lot of this happens, you know, it's I often joke about, you know, the idea of this invisible college of UFO elite or whatever, but, you know, a a coffee group of, you know, 12 old guys who have tricked the government into studying psychic bullets or whatever. That's that's real. (laughs) You know, that that sounds crazy, but that's really what happened. Yeah, it is. It's just such a fascinating thing. A lot of this has to do with the the rise of the Internet and with uh, the democratization of media and Mm. all of a sudden. All of the what had been the major news agencies are all struggling to keep up and they've lost so much business and they've had to trim their operations considerably. And I think probably the defining moment of that was when CNN fairly publicly fired its entire staff of science editors. Mm-hmm. They completely got rid of the science editor editorial department and the science section on the CNN website. This was, I'm guessing this was around 2008, 2010. I'm really not too sure. Uh, but the entire science section of their website became replaced with the empowered patient, which was basically just a, a, a blog where anyone could just write whatever alternative medicine stuff they heard about on Dr. Oz. And that was their new science section. Uh, and and we, we see the same thing going on with, um, to a, to a lesser degree with the television news media they've had to trim down their their science departments a lot i know I mean, what's the first to go it's what the public is least interested in which is real science which is such a frustration because if you you know a lot of a lot of the uh, people often ask you know kind of why ufos is such a particular bugaboo of mine and the reason is because if you speak to the people who are you know, if, if you if you get one on one with the people who are at these conventions or or what have you, a lot of them will tell you, you know, no, I, I really like science. You know, they're they're reading books about 
space and and math and whatever simultaneously while consuming kind of UFO media. And at least in my experience, what's driven them towards the rabbit hole is there aren't good ways for them to engage with science in the same way that they can engage with, say, ufology because or these other kinds of fringe ideas, because those ideas you don't you know, there's no pedigree. There's no required like pass or you don't need a Ph.D. to go to a UFO meeting and become the smartest person in the room and, and start feeling like you're learning things or doing active things. It's such a it's such a you know, for me, part of this story is also a failure on the side of kind of science communication and the science science just in general to really engage with the public, because, you know, if again, if you talk to people, most people in their daily lives know somebody who says they've seen a ghost or has seen a UFO or whatever, but not a lot of people can claim that they know a working scientist or someone even with a master's degree or a PhD. Absolutely. Very, very true. I, I think a, a, a sort of a, I think, a, what's the best way to describe this? The the invisible gorilla in the room. There's, I, I think there's a, a big problem, a big disconnect that not too many people are aware of. And that's that science and skepticism are not the same thing. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about the people at UFO conferences who they've got their Stephen Hawking book on one hand and their UFO book on the other hand, and they love them both, and they're big fans of both, which is very possible. Um, what neither of those includes is skepticism, which is, I mean, I'm, I'm using the word with a lowercase s. I, I don't use it with the uppercase s. <laughs> Uh, but it's, it's the ability to tell what's real from what's not. And that's not necessarily science. One of the, one of my favorite examples of this is, um, the, the famous experience, it was called the skull experiments. It was the famous experiments to test, uh, seances that was conducted by the, um, the society for psychical research, uh, probably 25 years ago, uh, but the, the date I don't have on the top of my head. But it was a large series of seances. They got, they hired this one particular seance performer couple, and they had all the seances in the basement of their house where they had their special seance room, and they invited all of these scientists to come in and sit on in these seances. And they were saying, hey, this guy's a physicist, therefore he can't be fooled. Mm-hmm. This guy is an experimental psychologist, therefore he can't be fooled. They thought that having being a scientist and knowing science is the same thing as the, the arts of deception, uh, skill in the arts of deception. When they brought in one psychologist who they didn't realize had also worked as a professional magician, I'm speaking of Richard Wiseman, he came out just falling down laughing because he knew every trick in the book that these seance performers were doing and fooling everyone in the room. <laughs> I had yeah. a conversation with him about it once. It was quite entertaining. And th- that's that's a great example. Of, you, can, you, you can love Stephen Hawking and you can read everything in the book and you can embrace it and be a giant fan and still not have any experience in telling what's real from what's not, what's, what's being spun by the charlatans and what's legitimate. So that's why I think that's another reason why it's easy for people who love science and love everything can be completely sucked in by this UFO flap. 
it's very another big I can at least I can speak from from personal experience. Another part of it, I think, as well, is if you are a a scientific person, someone who's who's scientifically trained and a scientific person, if you're scientifically trained, if you have that piece of paper that says, you know, hey, I got a Ph.D., If you go to a UFO conference and they find out that you have a PhD, they will treat you like a genius. You know, every, everything you say is is interesting and they want to know your opinion on it and they they want you to agree with their view on UFOs and everything else. It's like being love bombed. You know, it's it's like um I can only imagine it's like what it's like to go into a Scientology meeting for the first time, you know, and then be like, oh, we got a live one. Let's get them in. You know, yeah. it's very. Um, what people are like, you're saying what they're looking for is kind of the credibility, you know, they're looking for the efficient that 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 uh, they're looking for the gravitas that comes with saying this is my friend, the theoretical physicist. And he also thinks that these are interdimensional werewolves traveling from the distant future you know that's what they want they don't want somebody to say this guy is is, we've reasoned with this person so that they agree with us now and like you're saying it's a very different it's very very different i i wonder one interesting connection that we've sort of seen a lot of people make on this especially with the ufo stuff coming up now is could this story have taken off like it it feels like right now in the United States especially there is sort of a perfect the soil is very very good for growing conspiracy theory groups coming up on five minute news I'm Anthony Davis you might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. You know, it's very, uh, very fertile ground right now. And so wondering, you know, could this have happened at, at any other time? And I mean, you see UFO flaps, no flaps. You see UFO stories kind of gain traction and groups kind of gain traction for a little bit. And they sort of die off and they grow back. And, you know, just kind of the cyclical nature of any sort of human endeavor like this. But this time feels a little bit different just because, it feels like they're really putting the cards on the table. What What do you think? Like, th- to me, this feels like this is Bigelow's. This is just the group in general, not even Bigelow necessarily. This is just the group in general's last push. You know, they're all getting older. This is kind of this is the time I, fe- I feel like they're trying to make that play. Um, but what what happens if it fails? What do you what do you think would happen or what do you think we should expect to see happen? I don't. Th- I don't think anything will change. I really don't. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the the names will. Like you said a little while ago, these are the same stories, just with different names and places on them, mm-hmm. and that's going to continue. The, the the thing. I I'm not sure that the. You do ask a really interesting question when you're talking about would this have been as successful in the media as it is if conspiracy theories weren't so popular right now. Um, I haven't thought thoroughly about that question, but my quick answer off the top of my head is. 
I don't think that's made much of a difference. Hmm. Um, absolutely, conspiracy theory, um, conspira- conspiracy ideation, conspiracy theory belief, it's much more out in the open now than it ever has been. And largely that's to do with having four years of a president who was an open conspiracy mm-hmm. theorist and just gave everyone license. Whatever your belief is, it's true. Air it. Scream it. Be loud and proud. And that's why it's loud and obvious and, and, and evident right now. But I don't believe there's any more conspiracy theory belief now than there has been at other times. Um, it's just been a closeted thing. You know, there's been academics who've been studying conspiracy theories for a long time now. It, it's still a relatively newer field of study, but, you know, at least 20, 30 years, people have been um, studying and surveying and finding out who believes what and what are the demographics and what groups of people believe which conspiracy theories. And that's that stuff has all been fairly, fairly consistent. Um, I, 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 would, I would backpedal that a little bit and say... Yeah, when you talk about the strangest conspiracy theories, I think people are more likely to answer yes on those surveys um, than they would have before. I think, yeah, I mean, again, anecdotally, going back to sort of when I, you know, when I first got interested in these subjects and kind of learning about people's odd beliefs and everything else, you know, the weirdest thing you'd find on the internet would be you know, I don't know, someone believes that they can exercise demons on their own or or, you know, there may be an alien star seeding people like you're crazy or whatever. Now there's whole Facebook groups. I'm part of a Facebook group on uh, there's three of them that are really fascinating. There's one that is for people who believe that they are star seeds. So they're alien souls inhabiting human bodies. Then there's one that is about um, they think that they are reptilian alien souls inhabiting human bodies. And then there's a group where the two groups fight with each other because one thinks that the reptilians are like evil or something. And the reptilians are like, no, that's discrimination. We're not evil. And they're, (laughs) you know, they're fighting. It's like that old joke of, you know, you go into a madhouse with, you know, um, you go into a madhouse with 17 guys who think they're Jesus at the end of the discussion. The only thing that any of them will believe is that none of the other dudes are Jesus. You know, it's, it's this crazy, um, it's this, just this other world out there on the internet. It's, it's, you know, it's forget the wild west We're we're talking like, you know, feudal, uh, you know, the feudal countryside <laughs> it's gone, uh, kind of. It's just gotten deeper, I think. And and I agree. I think part of that is has to do, like you said in the beginning, or you said earlier, part of that has to do with the Internet now. You know, it's no longer just your, you know, your, oh, your whatever, your crazy brother who believes in, you know, the JFK conspiracy or whatever. Everyone's crazy brothers are all talking together on the Internet and it's becoming an echo chamber. And now they all are part of a militia or something. Yeah, I mean, it was Usenet groups you know, mm-hmm. 20 years ago, and 20 years before that, it was mimeographed newsletters that people were typing and mailing. Right. The communities have always been out there. They really have. Yeah, yeah. That's it's... one thing. In, in, in the research that I do, I'm often reading these really old books, books from 100 years ago, and I am struck every single time 
when I find that there is the exact same weird cult group, just with a different name that existed in Germany in 1920, Mm -hmm. or whatever it is. It is amazing how similar weird beliefs were 100, 200 years ago to what they are today. It's it's one of it's funny. We we rail, as you can imagine, a lot against ancient aliens, um, the TV show on our on our podcast and social media. Rightfully so. One of the only things that they sort of get right, but they get it right. They get it right by mistake is, (laughs) you know, that these stories are common. They are they are historical and they have a historical basis. You know, the idea of um, my favorite sort of link between kind of modern day and ancient or not even ancient, really, but, you know, historical, I guess I'll say paranormal beliefs is modern day sort of UFO belief. And then, you know, 1800s, 1700s, 1600s, 1500s, witchcraft and demonological belief. You know, so those again, those stories, they're the same stories, you know, of um, being abducted from the bed at night, waking up in a forest in like a circle of trees and being, you know, like the, the stories are so shockingly similar that it's easy to see how someone without maybe kind of a skeptical lens or training and kind of, you know, historical thinking and and those sorts of things. It's easy to see how someone could see that and think, oh, my God, this it's all been happening since time immemorial. And they built the pyramids and suddenly you're on the History Channel um, hosting your own show, you know, versus looking at it and saying, oh, my God, there's something there is clearly something about common mythology that we're not taking into account here. That has to be a part of these discussions. But that's another question, I guess, or something else that I find. I just, I I have to ask you ancient aliens, right? That's, that's the one thing that I really do think ancient aliens in the history channel, just the A&E network in general, it seems to me, you know, when I was growing up, if I wanted to find out about UFOs, I had to find a guy who was selling copied VHS tapes, right? <laughs> or or I had to go onto like a website that was going to definitely install a Trojan horse on my mom's computer. Today, I turn on the History Channel and I am exposed to conspiracy theory and uh, pseudoscience that, I, that otherwise would be very challenging for me to get. You know, I'll never forget my... My sister, she's 10 years younger than me. And when she was, she must have been maybe 15 or 16. We were driving in the car and I was talking to her about, you know, kind of how excited I was that I was starting this podcast and talking to her about it, everything else. And she said, you should do an episode on mermaids because I saw a documentary saying how mermaids are real. <laughs> and I wanted to, like, I, you know, screech the car over and, and like, so you know, so I want to, I guess on your earlier point that it hasn't gotten, it hasn't gotten, um, maybe belief in conspiracies hasn't gotten worse. I kind of want to counter and and say, you know, well, the history channel, it seems to me is a, it's the vectors seem easier to get, right? Like the germs are out there in much more number than they ever were before. It seems to me. Yeah. There's easier access to misinformation, but there's also easier access to good information. So I, I, I think, the, you know, the rising mm. tide lifts all the boats. Um, 
And I think every argument that people make that uh, the state of misinformation is worse today than ever before, I think, uh, I think, number one, that's wrong in my experience because if you go back 300 years and pick up, look at, look at mm. old newspapers, sure. the state of misinformation was just as bad then, if not worse. And, and, and we have such easy access to whatever we want, be it good or bad. Mm. No, that's a good point. It's a very good point. I'm a, um, I am definitely a chicken little type personality by, <laughs> um, you know, by nature. So everything is the world is falling on me. Uh, what do you think as, okay. As people who are, when I, when I was getting started in, I guess, skepticism okay. and getting started in, you know, running the podcast and everything else, one of the big challenges I had was finding it's still, it's frankly still a challenge finding communities to um, to feel like you're working with or finding a way to do good. You know, and I think that some of those avenues that you've already pointed out, you know, Wikipedia page editing or working for groups that do that sort of thing, um, talking, just talking to people in your daily life about these sorts of things is a really good way to get involved. But do you have any kind of tips, suggestions, things for people who want to become skeptically active, but, but haven't been or, or don't know how to start. Well, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a, a great question, and it's something that people have talked about for a long time. Uh, I mean, ever since I started doing the podcast, which I kind of, you know, fell into the whole skeptic world backwards. I didn't even, really wasn't even aware of its existence until, you know, it sort of found me rather than the other way around. But people have been asking, hey, you do this so well, how can I help? What, what can I do to to help you spread the message or, or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of things you can do. Um, there was, um, there's a guy named Daniel Loxton. He was, uh, he, he works for a skeptic magazine. Um, and he works for, I believe there's a, there's like a, a kid's uh, segment of the magazine. And I believe he's the editor for that. At least he was, I haven't talked to him for a while, but he published a, a little PDF book. Well, I say little, it wasn't little, it was big. Um, what was the title? It was like, what, what next? Or what can I do now? Or what can I do? Something like that. If you, if you Google his name, Daniel Loxton, L-O-X-T-O-N, um, and some words, something like that, something like, what can I do next? You'll get this fantastic book. And what Dan did is he, he came and he talked to 20 or 30 of us, people who were out there in the trenches doing this skeptical outreach all the time. And he said, what do you recommend people do? And he did a fantastic job of organizing this into sections and everything. Here's what you can do if you have money to spend, if you have no money to spend, if you have time, if you have no time, whatever it is, whatever your situation, here's a list of great ideas. That, so that's, that's one resource that I would point anyone to who's listening right now. But my own personal answer to that question, it's kind of, it's been all over the place and I've suggested all kinds of different things, but it just kind of boils down to one thing is just be, be out there. Um, let, let your friends and family know that you're going to have the skeptical perspective and that you're that skeptic guy. And pretty soon you will no longer have to break into other people's conversations and say, hey, that's bullshit. What's going to happen is they're going to come to you and say, hey, Mr. Skeptic, we want your perspective on this weird <laughs> thing that we've been talking about. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's more of a grassroots effort, and 
when you're doing this with people that you know, when you're when you're out there and known as the skeptic character among your friends and family, you're likely to be a lot more effective uh, than you would be talking to people you don't know well or trying to do something on the internet because there's a lot of noise and it's very easy to get lost in the noise. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, yeah, the book, the book listeners, by the way, is, uh, is called, what do I do next? That's um, it. I was in the ballpark. You were close. 105 ways to promote skeptical activism. So, um, I'll, uh, I'll put a link to it into the show notes here, of course, as well. And I'll also I'll retweet that out with this episode uh, or around the time of the episode as well. So check that out for sure. What 100 percent agree with you there on just become the skeptical guy in your friend group or in your, you know, kind of in your world. Um, I have my my in-laws now send me not not so much my in-laws, my my grandma in law, I guess I will call her because uh, that's what she is. But I've never thought of that title before. Um she will send me, I'll just, I'll wake up to my inbox with, you know, Bigfoot in a dress, question mark. And you know, it's, she's like, what do you think about this, Chris, for your show? Um, and I, you know, can only imagine what she tells her friends, her, you know, her uh, granddaughter's husband does for a living. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But yeah, it no. Uh, I guess any last thoughts you have, you know, kind of on the current state of things, um, What's a piece of content or uh, a new thing that you're working on that you, you think people should get excited to check out or even just, I, I don't know, any last thoughts, stuff, stuff you want to tell the, the listenership of the show? Yeah, let me share one free tip really quick. Uh, when you want to look up anything, you heard something strange and you want to learn the real story about it, add the word skeptic to your Google search. <laughs> so Robert Bigelow, UFO, skeptic, and you're going to get a much better idea of, of the uh, of the true state of affairs there. So that's For my free sure. tip. But let me give you my, my, my one last thought here. Um, one, one theme that I've become keenly aware of in my years of doing this is that in every, in every tribe, I'm just going to use that word even though nobody likes it to apply to them, but really it applies to all of us. In every tribe, every tribe believes that they are immune to misinformation. And they believe their thoughts are the correct thoughts and their beliefs are the correct beliefs. So one thing that I often try to do on my show is I say, okay, what's my tribe? What is the tribe that all of my science friends and, and everyone are all into? And I say, okay, what is the thing? How can I shine the light back on us and find the things that are wrong in our thought processes? What are our blind spots? So I've got two episodes that are coming out. Uh, one's next week and one's the week after that. Uh, the first one is on clear-cutting. Um, everyone hates clear cutting, right? This is the logging method where entire mountainsides are scraped completely bare down to the dirt. Everyone hates clear cutting. That's those evil logging companies trying to scrape every last penny out of the forest. Uh, and, um, it, it just out of pure greed and they don't care if it ever is able to grow back or not. So Knowing nothing about clear-cutting, I did a deep dive into that research, and clear-cutting is not a logging method. It's the method of regrowing trees after the logging's been done. Right. <laughs> and in most places where it's done, it's because it is the most effective way to regrow the forest. Um, so, and and the, the episode goes into that in, in, in detail, but uh, that was a huge surprise to me. And my friends are all going to hate me when that episode comes out. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then the other one that comes out the week after that is um, 
are billionaires really um, harmful to the world? Mm. Because so many people I know say, we got to get rid of billionaires. Billionaires hurt economies. The existence of billionaires is wrong. And there is some truth to that, but only in a very limited number of countries that have very special circumstances. Uh, the United States and most westernized countries, that's not true, it turns out. Economists have been studying this for a long time, and there's all kinds of theory, and it's backed up by observational data that billionaires d don't have any impact on an economy. They don't help. They don't hurt. Hmm. That goes for most billionaires in most of these countries. I want to clarify, there are countries where the existence of billionaires is absolutely horrible, but that's the countries that are all full of corruption, like um, Russia, India, Indonesia are, are, are sure. three of the worst. So anyway, that's another case where I was really trying to piss off my own tribe. And that, <laughs> I think, should be a core tenet of anyone who claims to be skeptical, is find your own blind spots, because we all have them, and we don't, we don't want them, but we have to know what they are in order to, to, to cure them. So I surprised myself with a couple of episodes this past couple of weeks, and it's something that I encourage everyone to do. Find out what you believe that's wrong. Oh, that's good stuff. I'm really excited for those episodes. I can't wait for the one on billionaires. Economics to me, it's of of any of the kind of, you know, fields of study. Economics is the one to me that seems the most like magic. And maybe it's my mom growing up. My mom works at a at a financial institution. So for me, she would just come home with all these spreadsheets and I would, you know, be like, oh, my God, what does my mom do for a living? I don't understand it. Um, but even today, I'm like, you know, looking at a dollar, like, where do you come from? <laughs> um, no, super exciting. Well, listen, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show again. Such a uh, such a pleasure and honor to have you on here. Um, we'd love to have you come back another time, too, and and give us more perspective in things. And, and thank you so much for coming on. Hey, you know where to find me. Thanks. It's It's been a lot of fun as always. Absolutely. All right. Dear listeners, thanks again, as always, for checking out the Mad Scientist podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell, and we'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at madscientistpod or at teamgiantsquid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. Because we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen. Our web design is done by Desdemona Howard. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. <laughs> Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. I'm Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. 
They were able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. 